Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. We have John Fisher again with us to talk Molinism. He said he can't get enough Molinism. He, he loves talking about Molinism. He said, show me the most Molinistic Molinist alive. And that would be Tim Stratton here. Welcome to the program. <laughs> I, well, we're, we're going to try to do a quick review of this. His video is only like 13 minutes. And this guy's a Molinist. I've had some interaction with him. And he's the guy who I pulled up the quote about uh, God's knowledge being unfalsifiable. So this, this is that guy. And he has this video of the problems with open theism, which I think I watched a little bit of it. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, how much, but uh, we'll go ahead and hit play, and we'll listen to see what he says. The Molinist is critique of open theism. To become a mere Molinist, all one has to do is affirm. Whoa, let me uh, reshare. Let's say stop, share, stop screen, share, share screen. All right, we'll try it again. Two propositions. Got number it. Number one, God possesses middle knowledge. And number two. That's funny because I, I got it on, uh, I put share audio. So I'll, I'll just come out and come back in. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> mere Molinism. There's been a lot of Molinist uh, chats lately. So there was a YouTube video. There's a YouTube video that someone posted of a guy explaining basically open theism in, from a Molinist perspective, problem problems against Molinism. And one of one of those problems was reverse causation. He didn't actually use those words, but the fact that if God knows your decisions before you make them, um, you, you get in this re reverse causation scenario in which your actions don't seem to be the deciding factor in, in what you're choosing to do if they're known before you make those actions. Reverse causation, like you run across any time traveler movie. You're basically fated to do these actions and your will doesn't seem to be the truth maker in those scenarios. All right. We're... Yeah, he used um, causality loop or something like that. That's that's how. Yeah, so let's. I'll hit play and see if you can hear him now. All one has to do is affirm two propositions. I don't know. Uh, well, chat. Can anyone hear Tim Stratton's video? Number one, God possesses middle knowledge, and number two, humans possess libertarian <laughs> freedom. These are the two pillars. Can of anyone in the chat hear and the video? After I can hear the it. scriptural support, perfect being theology, it's your and philosophical arguments. Many Christ followers seem to think that these two key ingredients are non-controversial and easy affirmations, <laughs> unless one is previously committed. To I can hear you. Exhaust determinism, what I call Ed, or it's because the. Uh... Uh, Pixel says, I can hear Strand. How about, uh, Joel, can you hear John talk? John. Technical difficulties. Okay. Always seems that. Okay. Are, are you How's good? it going? 
Yeah, it was me. It was me. It was you. Okay. <laughs> You're sabotaging me here. Just destroying me. What do you think, baby girl? Am I being destroyed? Am I being sabotaged? All right. Let's let's listen to Stratton. Uh, he, he's not given any real information so far. He's just doing his intro uh, 40 seconds yes. in. With these two propositions in mind, I'm often asked what I would do if I were eventually convinced that Molinism is false and I had to choose between either Calvinism or open theism. Ooh. This is a tough question <laughs> for me to answer because it seems to me that both of these competing systems affirm what A.W. Tozer described as a low view of God. Now, since I'm it's always dignum the deal. highest view of God possible, that's, that's always the driving factor for these to people. Give a nod to open theism over Cal Yeah, what makes God the best God? It's like, well, I think okay. a God who wears a hat is better than a God who doesn't. Therefore, it's, God like, must wear a hat. They don't care about like learning how how it's been revealed. They just want to declare their own ideals. It's that's like, what it is. Pink is the best color, so God must be pink and wear a hat. <laughs> That's the best God imaginable. It seems to me that while both views degrade God's maximal greatness, oh, yeah, see, yeah. the open theist typically has a low view of God's knowledge, while the Calvinist affirms a low view of God's character. To the open theist's credit, it seems that they hold the view that God does not know the future or possible futures, as Dr. Strange does, in an attempt to save God's character and omnibenevolence, That's which Calvinists often reject. The open theist, however, seems to throw the baby out with the bathwater and goes too far in their attempt to defend God and affirm his <laughs> omnibenevolence. Sam writes, hmm, God determines all evil versus God learns things. Tough one. <laughs> benevolence by denying his omniscience as traditionally understood to make a case for this low view of god's knowledge the open theist typically offers the philosophical argument known as the grounding objection and cites a handful of vague bible verses in the old testament Equivus erasmus and i vague bible verses have previously argued that the grounding objection is unconvincing in chapter 15 of human freedom divine knowledge and mere molinism so the rest of this video will be spent surveying why do molinists use marvel analogies more than biblical examples that's always what i keep hearing anyways yeah they, they're always like dr strange and uh i don't know apparently this new loki series that i haven't seen yeah, um, Loki, Loki is the best possible villain right <laughs> the greatest of all imaginable villains <laughs> yeah the five Bible verses from the Old Testament that seem to serve as the biblical foundation for many open theists. These five verses focus on the word perhaps in an attempt to argue that the future <laughs> is unknown to God and unsettled and thus open. If God does not know the future with certainty, he obviously cannot know possible futures either. And thus, the open theist opposes middle knowledge and molinism my friend who is an advocate of open theism respectfully challenged me with the question is that you why would no. god say perhaps i don't think he considers me a friend i don't know if he i probably doesn't even like me for my interactions with him so he's 
he, he gets pretty belligerent about his uh, Molinistic views. Uh, oh, you just don't understand Molinism. Perhaps, perhaps I do understand Molinism. And so I ask my questions in very particular ways, which you can't answer. Perhaps that's the case. <laughs> if he wasn't confirming possibilities do exist and was denying that all is predestined. To be clear, I've argued that if Molinism is true, then all is predestined. So yeah, so like one question I'll ask the Molinist is, uh, can God do anything different than what God knows he will do? Or can God, uh, or can, if we are told, if God tells us what we will do, can we do something different? And uh, it, it, it creates that casual loop. It creates that uh, reverse causation. And uh, it, it creates one of those uh, Cassandra complexes. Uh, remember Cassandra in Greek uh, theology? Uh, she knew the future, but was powerless to do anything about it. And so the, the word will, they, they'll they say, oh, um, you, yeah, you don't have to do what you, uh, you, God knows you will do. They change it into a might do and be try to avoid what what their actual beliefs about the subject are but they they do believe in their head that god knows what we will in fact do 100 fatalistically so you don't have to do what you're guaranteed to do right and if god told you what you're guaranteed to do you could do something different and and so it, it, it violates the internal structure of the question and they like to conflate the word will like like when God's using it, God knows what you will do. That's fatalistic. That that's uh, unavoidable. But when God tells us what we will do, then we're using the word "will" colloquially. Like, like I know I'm gonna go mow the lawn sometime today. Hopefully today or tomorrow, mow the lawn sometime this week. I know I will do that. Um, but it's not a fatalistic will. And so there's there's conflations of words there. The the knowledge that they ascribe to God about the future is is a knowledge that is unfalsifiable in their own words and by Tim Stratton's own admittance. And so they, they don't like those types of questions, which that show the reverse causation uh, loop that they're actually engaged in. They, they, they can't say that we could subvert the future if God tells us what he knows we will do. It just doesn't work out. But not causally determined and that there are still real possibilities available to libertarian free creatures be that as it may my open theist friend then shared the following definition of the word perhaps used to express uncertainty or possibility he then provided the following biblical data from the new king james version let's start with numbers 22 verse 33 the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If, perhaps, she had not turned aside from me, surely because I would also have killed you by now and let her live. Okay. Then he offered Jeremiah 26, verse 3. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Jeremiah 36, three, it may be perhaps that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities, which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their inequity, 
And there's some so I'm just going to say that open theists and dealing with Molinist, you're probably not going to gain too much ground by pointing to the perhaps verses. There are certain times where God does not expect things to happen that do happen. And so that's that's that actually violates their system where God's not going to wrongly expect something. But you have those times you have uh, God saying that he thinks something's going to happen and then something else does happen uh, several times in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 5 is one good example. In Jeremiah, he's talking about the wicked sister Judah sought. I thought she would return, but she did not return. Those types of examples of God's failed expectations. So failed expectations are better against Molnus and perhaps are better against traditional theists and Calvinists. So, so, so he said that these verses are vague. That's what he said before he introduced them, right? Right. Well, he just so, so vagary simply means using a subjunctive to him. Well, I think what he means is that these are just like not prominent verses, which could be taken in multiple well, ways. Ob obscure verses is what he means. Yeah, something like that. It'd be like. Like the like, Calvinists, they're like, God is immutable because haven't you seen this verse in the middle of Malachi 3? It's like, Malachi 3? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the what everyone in the New Testament quotes from. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I do uh, understand that sometimes you, you can't just pull out random obscure verses to but, try to make some sort but of... But his examples method. weren't obscure. Like, those are... Two of them, at least, were in the narrative. Jeremiah, of course, is just like a long, you know, diatribe against Israel. But but the donkey? And what was the other one that was, that was like, the line of Judah will turn from their evil way? No, no, that's this one. But the other one was... Was, uh, insane, was it right? like leading them around? Uh, let's see. Uh, Jeremiah. Oh, they're both Jeremiah. Because he's only given. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep rolling. To another place in their Yeah, site. he's still setting it up, so it's hard. You can't really respond because he hasn't said they anything. They will consider, though they are a rebellious house. Hosea 8-7. So Caleb asks, God can know infinite future possibilities without having certain foreknowledge. Tim literally just said that God knows the future as certain therefore god knows all possibilities huh right so they think that these two things are compatible that things don't have to be the way that they are and things are certainly the way that they are <laughs> unfalsifiably the way they are but there is a possibility that they're not the way that they are right because the way it sounds like at least from the last Molus talk we had is that they're, they're thinking of things as like all possibilities are their own kinds of reality the possibility is a form of reality, and so it's not that it's not that like there's only one one uh, pathway. And, like the only thing that I could try to analyze that I can't even speak now. Analogize this to is like quantum mechanics, where you know you have a probability function. So there's a like the famous one is Schrodinger's cat in a box, where there's a probability that it's going to be alive or dead. And it's almost like he's he's saying. You know that the that the God knows that, that the cat will always be dead, but you have all the, these uncertainties, and that and it's not that the cat is actually alive or dead. It's that there's kind of like two parallel realities, but one is what he's calling the actuality, and the other is the 
the potentiality. That, that, that's the sense that I'm getting from Molinism from the last talk we had. That is exactly what they, they do. It, it's it's more of a cop-out in, in how I see it. So it looks like they are just adding another attribute to any object to try to, and the, the sole purpose of this attribute is to claim that two of their other attributes don't contradict. And, uh, and so let's, let's say, um, I say this, this car is red, um, but this car is also blue. And you say, well, no, if it's red, it's not blue. And then I say, oh, it has this third property called indefinitiveness or something. So I make up a third <laughs> attribute. I said, red cars can be blue if they have indefinitiveness. And you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's, it's just an invented attribute to try to get around a logical contradiction. It's yeah. again, it's not something that they could demonstrate is an attribute. It violates what we know about uh, words and word definitions. It, yeah. And that was the big thing that they were just declaring things instead of proving it. But, but you're saying already that he's saying this is unfalsifiable. If you, if you think something is unfalsifiable, that means there's nothing you're going to be able to do to convince them they're wrong. They've already just, they've declared that to you in advance. Uh, Caleb says, so doesn't that mean the probabilities for those possibilities are just zero in God's mind? Right. And so again, uh, the funniest thing, uh, so teriology 101, I said, if there's no probability of something, it's not a possibility. And then the guy's like, oh, only open theists believe this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so funny. It was so funny. But uh, well, we'll, we'll hear this guy. We'll hit play. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If perhaps it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. He followed this biblical data with the question and implied objection and said, if I in truth by grace uh, gives a shout out to my daughter who ran away. If she runs back over here, I'll I'll, I'll tell her hi. She <laughs> says, uh, "I'd like to sing out a hello to the beautiful young lady with a pretty bow and golden glitter top." Nice to see you, honey. She's she is a darling girl and she's always happy. And it's good to have happy kids. I told you I might go to church this Sunday, while knowing and believing I will not go to church this Sunday. Did I mislead you? Why or why not? If so, why not apply the same standard to God and his word? That's a good question, but it should be noted that this going to church on Sunday example is unlike the biblical data offered. God never says, perhaps I will do X or not X. Rather, God speaks of the alternative possibilities that free creatures have at their disposal. Moreover, if God doesn't want to reveal the entire truth for morally sufficient reasons. Well, so I, I'm not sure what he's getting at here. He's saying the perhaps is only apply to human actions. And so in, in Exodus, no, I mean, he said, it's the phrasing. Didn't he just say it was the phrasing that, I, I, that if I, he, if he said perhaps this, but perhaps this, which I, is I, like, like there's a reason that language is designed the way it is. You don't want to spend your time talking all the time. There's like to say the same guys. things, <laughs> right? And so in Exodus uh, 32, 33, God says, "Remove your jewelry so that I may know what to do to you guys." So He's like, "Come on, you guys do something, and I'm going to figure this out as we go." 
I mean, so these these this language is applied to God and God's own actions. He seems to say, perhaps these people will do that. Perhaps these people will do that. Since it's not being applied to God, then it's not like a real problem for Molinism. It's this is strange. I might be missing what he's going yeah, for yeah, here. Yeah, but he wouldn't like if I said perhaps he wouldn't take that as though I, I actually knew the answer and I'm being snide or something like that. <laughs> Like, are you going? Maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, granted, sometimes I might do that. My daughter says, can we go to McDonald's? I'll say perhaps, and I really don't want to. But I guess they can with enough fortitude and persistence and cuteness convince me to go to McDonald's. So it is it's still within the realm of possibilities, even though I'm heavily leaning no sometimes. <laughs> Perhaps to strengthen the reader's faith, but, it, but it's still then open. It's not a zero, right? It's not zero. Nothing, nothing. Like, you don't because you know you're not lying. <laughs> you would be lying if you said perhaps, but there was zero probability of it happening, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, did I ever tell you about my Matt Slick interaction about uh, <laughs> Jason going to the car and a meteor or anything like that? And so I was talking to Matt Slick about God's knowledge of the future, and he's Matt Slick says, "Oh." God's knowledge doesn't mean that the uh, the future is forced to happen. It doesn't mean it's faded. And he and he said he gave an example. He says, uh, you know, Jason. And I said, okay. He says, I know that he's going to go to the car after this debate because this is an in person thing at that debate. And I said, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, yes, you do know that. And he says, oh, barring any like a uh, random meteor hitting him on the way or something like that. I'm like, is is this an analogy for God's knowledge? Because if so. Yes. God, <laughs> God doesn't know stuff in fatalistic senses. And that, that's the way that why those things aren't fated to happen, because there's there are is a non-zero probability of the thing not actually playing out. So his his example was just telling us what human knowledge of the future is like. And then he's like, oh, that also applies to God's knowledge, which, by the way, also is unfalsifiable. So it's they smuggle in assumptions. It's like, kind of like a Moat and Bailey tactic where they they defend this easier thing to defend, like our general knowledge of the future, which mm -hmm. everyone, you know, you can't function unless you could trust to your knowledge of the future. That if you're driving on your car, the road's not an illusion or it's all just going to disappear and disintegrate. You operate your life with expectations and knowledge of the future we couldn't operate otherwise and so they'll use that knowledge and they'll say the same thing applies to god except also falsifiable while also retaining the element of um not faded <laughs> I, I mean it, it really looks like the entire incentive behind this is that they just want to like declare a lot of things about god like they they, they want to relate to it but they want god to be beyond us in a, in a very strong and meaningful way so that they can declare that God is so much bigger, right? God is and, maximally great. Yeah. It's a formula. And so yeah. if, if you figure out the equation, the formula, I, I'm getting clicks from you on your side. Okay. Look, look. Yeah. Uh, if you figure out the formula, you can figure out exactly what God's like. Yeah, but, but the, the sad thing about it is like, it's, it's almost like you can't actually convince them of anything because anytime you try to relate it like to something in the real world, they'll be like, yeah, but that's too, that's too mundane. That's, that's too beneath 
what the greatest thing could possibly be. <laughs> and so anything that's relatable that, that should be by the very fact that it's relatable, convincing is it, it just immediately discarded on that basis. Yeah. I get that all the time. Uh, so like, so it'll be like, well, God knew this future event was going to happen. I said, well, I was right the other day when I said I was going to go to work the next day, and that happened. And they're like, "Are you comparing your knowledge to God's?" <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, yeah. they, like sentences don't become super spiritual just because you add name God's name to it, and then the sentence means something completely different. Like, like the Bible, anytime it evokes the name God, yeah. now they're talking in completely different categories. Oh, it's so funny. Idol Killer wants us to recap the show. The recapping the show is uh, Tim Stratton has not gotten into any of his material points yet. <laughs> yeah, know. he's five minutes in, and he's but he's he's setting up the argument, so it's understandable at this point. Yeah. So we'll we'll hit play. Perhaps language seems just fine, be that as it may. It seems that far too much theological freight is being loaded on top of these five vague verses, all while ignoring the rest of scripture and other arguments. All right, we'll jump to this Pixel of Lights comment. John 7, 1 through 10 says, Jesus isn't going to the feast, but then he goes a little later after his brothers go. And so how a classical theist would deal with this is they'll, they'll anytime like Jesus can predict something like a rooster crowing three times or Judas's betrayal, they'll say, see, omniscience. But anytime that it's like, Oh, God, Jesus doesn't know the end times, Mark 13, 32, or even this. They'll say, oh, that's just his human part. And so he, he didn't have like obtained omniscience. He had, he had, uh, I was just actually reading William Lane Craig today on this issue about Jesus's suppressed divine. It's like a subconsciously he had all the divine attributes, but it wasn't like latent and showing within his, his body, his person. And so they they'll categorically dismiss any Jesus evidence against their. Attitude. I mean, isn't the isn't the idea that he's fully God and fully man? Like, I don't right. understand what suppressing the attributes means if you're also saying he's fully God. But uh, you you're understanding the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union depends on Greek hypostasis, the the Platonistic idea of the God level, the spirit level, and uh, the man level, material level. And these levels cannot intermix. And so if you really press someone who is deep into the hypostatic union, is the human part of Jesus God? Is that part of Jesus? Is that God? They have to say no, because that violates what they know about God. It's a union. And so it's it's two different hypostases, which are not the same. Um, it can't add parts to God. It's, it's just this... Uh, this uh, hypostasis with parts coming into union with the hypostasis without parts. I mean, it sounds like, separate. Well, anyway, we don't have to go over this right now. But <laughs> So, yeah, so which is really interesting. I was just dealing with the Calvinist about the hypostatic. They don't, they don't know what their own teachings on it, and you have to basically give them an education of what their own beliefs say on the issue before, mm -hmm. before you can actually talk to them about the issue. It's actually pretty funny. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'll talk. After all. Suppose that I've already planned a surprise birthday party for my colleague. His friends and family are already invited, presents have been purchased, and the cake has already been baked. Then I call my friend and say, you should come over to my place on your birthday. Perhaps you'll be surprised with a party, and if you're lucky, I may or may not have bought you a present. 
would anyone condemn me as being misleading since the party is already settled and I've already purchased his present? Perhaps only the open theist. Now, what if I invited my call? <laughs> okay, so uh, um, human speech is not always straightforward. There's a sarcasm in which you could you could actually say something like, "Oh, you're you're a really smart guy," and uh, what you actually mean is the exact opposite, which you're not very smart at all. And so you you sometimes see these idiomatic uses of speech throughout the Bible, like Paul says that the Corinthians are are overflowing in riches and all things. And he, he might be serious, but he also could be kind of mocking or being sarcastic because they are lacking in certain areas of spirituality uh, that is contrasted to their material wealth. And so uh, he's, he seems to be saying that open theists don't understand idiomatic speech. But the idiomatic speech is idiomatic in that it's not meant to convey, it's not meant to trick someone or mislead someone. A lie is a statement with intent to deceive. And so if, if you're joking and it's an obvious joke, or if you're being tongue in cheek and it's obvious tongue in cheek, you're not actually communicating the straightforward value of the words that you're actually saying. So, so if you're to argue a defense of monism, then if you understand the nature of God, then you would understand that if every time he said, perhaps it, it did quite mean uncertainty. Right. Yeah, that it seems to be the argument that he's setting up. Right. That that this, this right. stuff could be tongue in cheek, and so then we have to start uh, asking ourselves the questions of okay, so what's going on here? What is God's intentions? What is God thinking? And of course, in their mm -hmm. theology, God doesn't have discursive thought. God God is not a being. God is not a being that that uh, gains experiential knowledge. Of a sense, that's so. William Lane Craig is all about this. That he he doesn't gain this knowledge, and his knowledge. I just posted a quote from William Lane Craig. It's not like uh, separate, uh, distinct propositions. His his knowledge is like one simple, intuitive knowledge of all creation, and so a lot of these interactions, you have to wonder how that fits their model of God and what what's going on here what's going on in the text when God says, perhaps, is God thinking? Is God interacting? What's God's purpose? What's God trying to affect? What's his audience think about that? What's his audience, what's the audience's takeaway? Uh, things like that. And we, we don't actually see that. I don't think he's going to go into those, those things in these verses, but we could say. Colleague to meet me at the coffee shop to discuss theology and said, come meet me at the coffee shop this afternoon to discuss why Molinism makes the most sense of scripture. I might even buy you your favorite drink. Now, even if it was settled in my mind that I will buy my colleague a cup of coffee, there's nothing deceptive about using this manner of speaking. As the French say, a façon de parler. If I was trying to influence and coax my colleague to meet me at the coffee shop without twisting his arm too much, then it would be entirely acceptable for me to speak in perhaps language, even though I'd already settled the fact that I will buy him a cup of coffee. But the, the point is you're actually communicating to the person that you will buy them, even if you're using that perhaps language, because you're you're doing it like tongue in cheek. You're you're enticing them. And they they under if you if that friend got to the coffee shop and 
you did not, in fact, buy him that coffee? Yeah, well, but this was his point. That's why he's saying he never said, I might, I might not. He always just said, I might, positive. And so that that's his argument. Like, I think you are agreeing with him at this point, at least on what the value of the language is. Right. And so uh, that that is the material question is, what is the point of the communication? What is it trying to communicate to the recipient? How does the recipient take that language? And... And I wonder, maybe we will reverse just a little bit and just grab one of these passages and use it in that sense. Perhaps I'll buy you your favorite coffee. He says, uh, uh, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind, the stock has no bud, as shall never produce meal. If perhaps it should produce, aliens would so swallow it up. Is that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't seem like the type of idiomatic speech that he used for the coffee. It's, it sounds like more of a, this actually does sound like an idiom in a different way in which you're, you're, you're describing the totality of the destru destruction that this is so, so thoroughly destroyed that even if this one thing was true, it would still be destroyed. Something like that. But we, we could go grab another one. Ezekiel. Therefore, son of man, prepare the belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity together or to, a, to another place in their sight. It may be perhaps they will consider, though they are rebellious house. And so this is actually a little bit more. This this seems not to be idiomatic because Israel continually rejected God and God continually tried to correct them and reach them. I think it's in Ezekiel where he says he punished the children in vain. That means God attempted to do something and the, the expected conclusion did not materialize from his actions. And that, that's an incredibly, incredibly uh, salient point against Molinism, Calvinism, and classical Arminianism. I'll try to pull up the verse exactly, but uh, if you just Google punish children in vain, that, that's what Ezekiel describes. So I'm not convinced that this perhaps in Ezekiel is being used in the idiomatic wink, wink, nod, nod way. Yeah. The other one, it seemed like it could be because it's just like, you know, like I'd never do that for you. And even if I did, I'd make you pay me too or something stupid like that. But, but in this one, for sure, like I don't see any sort of wink, wink, nod, nod here. It's uh, like he doesn't expect them to, but maybe – but he doesn't expect it. This is this is closer to you being perhaps with your daughter. Perhaps my I'll take you to McDonald's. Right. So I did get it pulled up. Um, this is uh, Jeremiah two thirty. So not Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are are so close thematically. I sometimes confuse them. Okay. So Jeremiah two thirty. In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravaging lion. So God, God's using this destruction as correction, and it didn't work. It failed to work. As mm -hmm. we see in Isaiah 5, he says, I did all these things. What more could I have done? God's expected results did, did not materialize. And you see that throughout the Bible, which, which is better to fight Molinism with, to combat Molinism, than, than the perhaps verse. It, it is a bit funny because if it, like if God knew, like say, say he was doing this to teach you that you can't correct these people, then he would say that. Like if you're doing this as a teaching moment, 
then you usually come around just like just like if any teacher is saying oh, oh yeah i knew you were going to do that but i wanted you to learn this that that's that's the way that you expect someone who knows in advance and reacts to it in that way so just being exasperated and that's the communication you're giving that doesn't communicate this idea of god knowing everything so i think the tenor actually matters a lot and it's it's a little bit softer so it's hard to it's hard to propose it as well but like there's just common reactions that you expect with any sort of behavior such as this where you would expect him to say yeah yeah i did this and i did this and i did this and you never so so see here's my proof that they would never be corrected that's what you would say if you knew they weren't going to be corrected you just had to prove it to other people it's a very different thing than just saying oh i tried it and it didn't work out I like the mind reading that goes on when people are reading the Bible. They come up with these really complex narratives that just just not present in the Bible, and they they attribute these motives to all the actors. It's like I I don't I don't think that actually flows from what you're describing here. Yeah, that, that's what you have to do. You have to come up with the, I, like I mean, maybe the teaching is the example, but maybe you'd have to come up with something else. You'd always have to come up with something different than what's actually just being said right there, because it's just not concordant with your what you're declaring about God. Yeah, like uh, people would be like, "Oh, the law in the Old Testament was just meant to teach people that no one could actually fulfill the law." Like what? <laughs> What are you talking about? And so it's like, <clears throat> okay. But uh, well, I'll go ahead and hit play. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into oh, captivity this is... to another place in their uh, sight. Yeah, we gotta I, should, go back. I should just let him read it for me. I not have bought you a present. <laughs> anyone condemn me as being misleading since the party is already settled? And I've uh, about using this manner of speaking, as the French say, a façon de parler. If I was trying to influence and coax my colleague to meet me at the coffee shop without twisting his arm too much, then it would be entirely acceptable for me to speak in perhaps language, even though I'd already settled the fact that I will buy him a cup of coffee. To keep this odd hermeneutical interpretation, the open theist would have to make a strong argument that Hebrew writers thousands of years ago would never use such façon de parler's regard. No, because actually how evidence works is a series of evidence lead to conclusions. And a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they're looking for hard and fast, like metaphysics, like, like this verse here must mean my own theology and nothing else. But the Bible and, and language, language just does not work like that. So take any random sentence in English and just throw it up on a screen and figure out how many different ways of reading it is. Uh, I, I like to use the example. I used it in my book is uh, my wife's the most attractive woman in the, in the world. Maybe that means that I'm more attracted to her than any other woman. Maybe that means all men are attracted to her the most out of all women. Maybe it's just a generality and people understand, Oh, that just means she's very attractive. Maybe I'm just joking or maybe I'm just downright lying. And so this one little phrase has countless different interpretations and you, you, uh, it's, you, you need more data. You need more data to come to absolute conclusions. And so I don't think open theists, I don't, I don't know if it, any open theist says, look, it uses this one perhaps here. So it must mean this particular 
idea. You you gather together the data, and then you look at the data, and then you parse the data, and you see what kind of conclusions you come to. And you have to look at the context of those various verses, like uh, we were trying to do. Yeah. That's so. why it's not it's not so obvious just looking at those verses until you you have to step back a little bit. But it is weird when whatever the interpretation they give you seems completely out of character with what's actually happening. <laughs> Remember that Isaiah, uh, that Isaiah debate where the guy's like, oh, this just means that God is it, it says God counts the waters in his hand. And he's like, that just means God's the standard for all creation. Like, what are you talking about? I, I, I just <laughs> But there, there are other readings of the verse. That's probably not one of them. Probably not one of them. That's also a telling thing is that a lot of people, they don't want to accept that there, there's a lot of fuzziness to words, and so there's plenty of legitimate ways to read something. Yeah, absolutely. So you do have to consider alter, alternative possibilities mm -hmm. for anything that you're digesting. This is just standard reading comprehension. Context gives meaning. Yeah. Uh, words are flexible. Concepts are flexible. You're not necessarily talking metaphysics. Yeah, generalities, our uh, speech is rife with generalities. Uh, you see it everywhere. So if I say you see generalities everywhere, that doesn't mean that you see it in the walls and every single word of every sentence. It, it itself is a generality, meaning mm -hmm. that this is just a normal convention of speaking. And yeah. so these things we do have to consider when we're reading the Bible and not try to treat the Bible as if it's speaking hard and fast things that cannot be disputed in any context. So I, he's, he's right in, in the fact that these perhaps verses have alternative readings, which are not necessarily open theistic. Yep. Starting the word perhaps. Given the vast amount of figurative language used in the Old Testament, as well as anthropomorphisms about God and his relationship to humanity, I see no need to interpret these five verses in, in such a wooden and literal manner. Wait, wait, stop. So, it's, it's a, so he's not talking about con context. He's just saying, well, because there are analogies in the, in the background, you, you can make anything into an analogy. That, that's what he just said. Because the Old Testament has lots of analogies and figures of speech then you're not required to make anything not be a figure of speech. <laughs> right. So uh, I guess this argument just applies anywhere in the Bible that no one could actually have any opinion on anything in the Bible because it could mean something else. And so we don't actually see a textual analysis like we would expect if he's actually doing due diligence to those texts to try to yeah. prove his reading rather than alternative readings. Anthropomorphism. I don't like this verse, therefore it means nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Pam might interpret Genesis. Now, what uh, have you ever heard of uh, Fish Fishburn? Fishburn, the Jewish Jewish scholar. Is it Lawrence Fishburn? No, that, no, no, that's probably a physicist. Uh, no, I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, I'll have to get his name, but he wrote an entire book about metaphors in the old testament and he says a lot of these things that are being dismissed in the old testament as metaphor we have to consider the possibility that they're not metaphor they're actually being literal mm -hmm. like god god wrestling with the sea creatures and things like that he's like we have to consider the possibility that these people actually thought god battled sea demons it, it we actually have to consider the fact that when it talks about uh the 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 
thunderous stuff going on that they actually believe what it's actually describing rather than just metaphor. And so we we need to actually consider the, the possibility that the words actually that we consider as metaphor or idioms or figures of speech actually aren't <laughs> and consider that as one of the readings and not do a little bit more than just dismissing it, waving it away. Maybe the Bible says God has wings. Uh, read the verse, see what the verse is talking about, see if it's it would fit metaphysically or uh, metaphorically uh, some sort of metaphorical concept, but also consider the fact that maybe in their perception of God, God did have wings. That That is that is one possible reading that should not be dismissed out of hand when reading these things. Really ought to get one's attention is the fact that scripture is clear that God does possess definite and certain knowledge of possible futures that never come to pass. One of the most popular cited biblical passages is found in 1 Samuel 23, 6 through 14. Here, God lets David know a truth to a counterfactual proposition, namely that if he were to stay at Kaliah, then Saul would pursue him, and that if Saul were to pursue him, then the men of Kaliah would give him over to Saul. Jeremiah 38, 17 and 18 also provides support for God's counterfactual knowledge. This passage makes it clear that God knows what would happen no matter what course of action Zedekiah chose to take. Additionally, consider that the test of a true prophet is the fulfillment of his predictions, according to Deuteronomy 18. <laughs> and how does that work out throughout the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I think it's actually really funny when they pull up the David and Kali incident. Are you familiar with that? So uh, Saul is pursuing David, and David is taking refuge in the city called Kali, and uh, or Kalea, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, he consults God. He does this. Uh, it looks. It seems like he does like an oracle ritual to see if Saul was to approach the city with an army, would the inhabitants turn over King David to Saul? And the answer was yes. And so David fled away from that. And so they use this and say, see, God knows all counterfactuals. Uh, a major glaring problem with that is um, their, their conclusions don't at all flow from the evidence that they're given. And you find parallel passages, I'll call them parallel, because it's the same setup, where like Abraham, he asks his wife, Sarah, and he says, if we go to Egypt, I know that they're going to see you and that you're a beautiful woman and they're going to kill me and then they're going to take you. That doesn't show that Abraham has all counterfactual knowledge of everything. It doesn't prove it particularly like, anything. Like we all know this. Like you play a board game and you know if I play this move, they're going to do this. You know counterfactuals. Does that mean you have perfect knowledge? Yeah, so what they actually want to believe is that the the knowledge it's it's the bait and switch it's the moat and bailey it's easy to defend people knowing counterfactuals and particularly it's easy to defend god knowing counterfactuals uh but they'll defend that but then they'll make this outrageous claim that god must have this unfalsifiable knowledge of all future events and even those counterfactuals are unfalsifiable just flipping those particular variables and, and well, so, well, that so he was trying to he was trying to make that more solid by just declaring that if you if you make a prediction and it's false that you're a false prophet, right? Yeah, that was the so, second so, thing. So that's well, that's his way of trying to act, it, 
it's 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 like a hammer and anvil thing where he's trying to hammer it in that you know if God says a counterfactual and it's not true, then he's a false prophet, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, except for throughout the Bible. <laughs> There's a lot of prophets who say things that don't come to pass. Right, right. except for the, the endless examples of where it doesn't work out, right? <laughs> and then they'll they'll be like, oh, that was conditional, so oof, we'll just kind of hand wave that. It's like, what? what is the standard here that if you don't explicitly give conditionals and it fails, um, now it's uh, uh, implied conditional it's, and it's, then you it's don't conditional. It's defined as conditional if it fails. <laughs> that's, so that's the standard. If it yeah, fails, then it was conditional. It's like if Judas never rebelled against Jesus and uh, or Peter, he after the cock crows, he, he uh, proclaims Jesus and his affiliation with Jesus. They'd say, see, that was a warning that caused him to change. Oh, by the way, that means God knows all counterfactuals because he knew what he was going to do. And so he <laughs> provided the conditions for him to change. Well, but this, this, like, this is what you mean when he says his beliefs are unfalsifiable. He can literally rewrite any narrative to fit his beliefs. There's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no examples that you could give that he wouldn't have a, a way to hand wave into his beliefs. Even if God explicitly Maybe. said, I do not know all possibilities. Go tell Caleb to come here. No. You're gonna have a parade of kids now. Uh, no, I'm just. I, I'm supposed to be watching the baby, so this is my baby watching time. And my, uh -huh. my daughter just ran off with my little viewfinder that showed the sleeping baby. And so I don't have visibility on this baby right oh, now. Great. And so <laughs> I'll hit play. <laughs> Some predictions. With that note. However, are never fulfilled. The baby might be crying upstairs. I don't know. These prophecies were delivered to responded by changing their lives. We see this in Isaiah. People responded to God. Oh, that. Uh, again, it's it's talking points. The Calvinists do the thing where they'll find a verse that they can talk to, and uh, they'll say, "See, this is God doing one thing. God does everything." And so it's it's a talking point. It's not a proof text. He'll find one verse where God tells people that something's going to happen and they change. And then he just talks about what Molinism is as a result. It, it mm -hmm. actually has zero evidence or proof that Molinism is true. It's a talking point and it's meant to obfuscate and trick people into thinking that there's actually evidence for this in the Bible. Isaiah 38, one through five, Amos seven, one through six, and Jonah three, one through 10. Thus the people who chose to yeah the jonah incident is very interesting jonah didn't want these people to repent he didn't tell them that there's a conditional he said 40 days are going to be overthrown and then he sat on the hill and he was really mad when it didn't happen and so the text says god saw what the people did and then god did not do what he said he was going to do so god said he's going to do that and the thing did not occur and so by this guy's own standard of false prophets jonah's a false prophet but of course unfalsifiable anything doesn't happen then uh you you get this ex post facto justification why why the rule doesn't get applied changed their lives avoided the consequences of what would have happened if they had not changed direction isaiah provides the test of the true god versus the trial of the false gods the primary test scripture provides for humanity to recognize the difference between the one true god and false gods 
is that a maximally great being <laughs> has certain knowledge of the- yeah this, oh, this, oh. this word is it's never found in the bible they never say maximally great oh. like this obsession is completely extra biblical it's so funny it's like oh I, isaiah if you read isaiah 40 through 48 you'll be like Oh, he's talking about maximally great beans. That's not at all what they're talking about in any way. It's God, it's God pleading with people to convert to his to worship him rather than his false gods. And he, he provides evidence. He says, I I could do things. I told you I was gonna do these things, and then I did them. These other guys that you're turning to, they can't do that. I, please turn and worship me rather than these false gods. That's not Molinism. That's not Molinism. He's it's it's not a, even a maximally great God argument. It's not well. God is maximally great, so he has this particular type of knowledge that is comes to him in a certain way, and he has these particular properties. That's not what's going on. Yeah, it's like a politician. He's like, I keep my politician. These other politicians didn't. I do vote for me, right? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and it's and they'll say, see, this is talking about maximally great God properties. No, no, it's not. Future, including the future choices of humanity. The Old Testament is rife with examples of what an omniscient God knows. But God knows not just what will happen in the future. He also knows what would have happened in other possible futures or possible worlds that he had the power to actualize or not. Oh, yeah, like like Abraham. He had the power to actualize or not. And so I, I'll do that. I'll to a molest. I'll say, hey, Abraham that had this knowledge. They'll be like, are you comparing Abraham to God? <laughs> like, what do you, what? <laughs> you can't have a conversation with these people. It's like your evidence, literally, that's what I said to one guy. It's like, no, what I'm saying is, literally speaking, your evidence does not lead to your conclusions. Your conclusions are completely unwarranted by your proofs that you're putting out. It's it's a non sequitur. Not the open theist asserts that God does not know the future or possible futures with certainty. With that in mind, Jesus stands in opposition to open theism. Consider <laughs> see 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 this is what they're doing. <laughs> and so you have those instances of Jesus not knowing something, and they'll be like, "Oh, that was his suppressed omniscience." And then like examples of like Jesus knowing something, they'll be like, "See, omniscience." <laughs> the knowledge possessed by the second person of the trinity in the 13th chapter of john jesus provides certain knowledge of judas's betrayal jesus did not say one of you is probably going to betray me no he provided knowledge of what will definitely occur not to mention the specific knowledge of peter's three denials of christ Uh, let's engage in our own counterfactuals let's pretend uh, judas did not betray jesus and actually used that as a warning and then became the most faithful of all apostles. Uh, he'd be doing the Jonah thing. He'd be he'd be saying, <laughs> "See, this was a warning that got him to change, and it was conditional. It's 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 not it's it's unfalsifiable. And these are just yep. talking points. It's it's yep. it's not evidence for their beliefs." Before the rooster crowed, the divine determinist, typically the Calvinist, says that Jesus knows the future sin of Judas because God had already settled the fact that he would causally determine Judas to sin. Thankfully, the open theist, along with the Molinist, sees the absurdity of such a claim. The maximally great and perfectly loving God revealed to us in scripture is not the author of evil, 
or a deity of deception. To the open- he's not. Then how does he decide which world to actualize unfalsifiably? <laughs> so God picks a world to actualize unfalsifiably but, as like an eternal decree. But, it's like, but if you could declare that it's everyone else's will, then you could just offload all the responsibility. So, yeah. so that's a. I guess I guess that's what he's saying. He's that. God is not maxly great in the Calvinist scenario because he's responsible. And so what they're trying to do is maintain Calvinism, but remove that responsibility right. for so the we, actions. We added uh, a new property to all objects that we're going to associate with probability, not the dictionary definition of probability, not, not that, uh, but we are going to assign this category of probability to all things and then declare this has solved our problem between God actualizing an unfalsifiable world and uh, God being the author of evil, according to what he's just said here. So that, that is the logic. It's we'll just introduce a random uh, uh, attribute that we can't really define that doesn't have a real meaning. And that solves our problem. That, that means our problem solved. <laughs> Open theists credit. They typically affirm that humans possess libertarian freedom. And that when we sin, we did not have to sin, as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here's the conundrum for the open theist. If God does not causally determine the sins of humanity, then how did Jesus know the future free sins of Judas with certainty? A sin that would... Yeah, like normal people, when I'm certain of things, when I'm certain that if I walk up to my daughter and say, would you like ice cream? And she'll say yes. I'm certain of that. And so the certainty that we use in our normal conversations is not this unfalsifiable certainty that they are actually ascribing to God. It's again, it's a bait and switch. It's a moat and bailey. They could defend this uh, general thing, and then but then they associate it with the knowledge of God, which which is completely different than our type of knowledge that they're dealing with. It's a bait wonder, and switch. I almost wonder if there's like a communication barrier you have with people where, like, just by instinct, anytime you're talking about God, words automatically means something differently and so they don't understand how you can use the words colloquially when you're talking about god because it's just like they, they don't think in those terms yeah th that definitely could be going on and uh but i i just just even interacting with these people and explaining it to these people uh, it's it's there's a there's a huge uh almost willful ignorance is what i'm going to put that Keith Dixon. The words mean things. Yeah. Words do mean things. <laughs> words mean stuff. <laughs> Certainly lead to the atoning death and resurrection of Christ. A maximally great God with middle knowledge would be in a position to know how Judas would and will freely choose in a libertarian sense with certainty. After contemplating open theism's attempts at justifying their low view of God with <laughs> biblical data. Kirk McGregor, like Norman Geisler, he wrote a book like creating God in the image of man. It's like, Oh, you guys have the low view of God. We have such a high view of God. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, 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 what kind of conversation are we engaged in? Noted the following in his biography of Luis de Molina quote, in short, the Molinist can consistently affirm the full scope of the biblical data, while the open theist can only consistently affirm a subset of 
that data and is forced to explain hey, away here, or ignore the sizable remainder. Go check on the baby. End quote. Calvinists have the same problem. The best view is one that can account for all the biblical data, not just a subset of it. I invite, right? yeah, except for except for the data in which God doesn't expect things that materialize in the world. God regrets his own actions, and so uh, I I do that actually probably that he's being very selective in what he's deciding to respond to i mean you you have to be in general with like you can't make an hour-long talk all the time <laughs> right but you'd hope that you would like concentrate on maybe their best arguments and uh he's if concentrating on his open theist friends arguments well that actually that could explain this data but uh, i do think it's pretty funny so um from what i get from him his his problem with open theism is that it that looks at the verses perhaps throughout the Bible and then actually considers that God doesn't know the outcome in those situations. And his counter argument is words sometimes have idiomatic usages and don't necessarily mean distinctive things. Okay, true, absolutely true. And uh, two, there are times in the Bible where God declares with certainty what will happen in counterfactuals and so i i don't think his evidence is actually reaching his conclusions where he claims that the bible actually teaches molinism and the perhapses aren't a problem for his view because he, he has done nothing to show that in any of those cases that he actually read that those perhapses are being used in the sense that he describes and doesn't describe how it's used in that sense in such a way that it would it would uh, communicate something of information to the reader, something something plausible. Yeah. So for his first argument, he's he's basically saying that uh, it, it's a it's a sort of response to a, a attack against Mormonism, right? His first one's a response, so it's like a what, what would you call that? Like a negative proof when you when you have to respond to someone else's proof. But anyway. So that first one's a response, and it's a possible his his response to that response is a possible answer. It could, he could be right about that one, but, but he, he, he didn't demonstrate. He, he, didn't, he didn't demonstrate right. So that's the summary for the first one. The second one was an actual active attempt to demonstrate Molinism, right? Which is a different than responding to someone else. That was him trying to prove it, and his conclusions didn't follow. Like we've already said multiple times. There's plenty of ways you can talk about human beings in the same way that he just talked about God. So, yeah, it's, so it's, it's a, a combination of special pleading and begging the question where he just, uh, well, yeah, we, we will grant that words can be used in different ways, but you, you just haven't shown it. You, you yeah. have not proved it. Uh, one of those verses is fairly clearly idiomatic. The other verse, not so much. And so, <laughs> open theists do need to keep that in mind as well that language is not hard and fast and some of these counterclaims that our proof texts can be idiomatically taken in different ways some of those claims are correct and that's why you really need to focus on on a proof text that actually proves your view that you could demonstrate why the certain phraseology actually um accentuates what you're saying and not their counterclaim. So something like Genesis 6, where God repents his own actions, they'll say, oh, that, that doesn't actually mean repentance. Really, it doesn't because the stories describing 
God seeing the world, <laughs> deciding to destroy it, and then destroying it, or saying he regrets creation. So what what more can that story say to illustrate God regretting his own action of creating the world? Have you do you ask these people if the, if they can concede that this is a plausible reading of that? Uh, I haven't done that for a long time, probably like five to ten years. I should start. I should start doing that. Where just just getting them to concede a little bit of ground. People in when they're in discussions or debates, they they don't want to concede anything. They just want to be like, if if I concede one point, oh man, now I've just undermined my entire case. And uh, they so they're they're threatened to do it, and so they they won't even concede that it's a possibility that you're right. It is interesting, but uh, well, Tim Stratton's an interesting guy. I've had some interactions with him. Maybe he'll see this video and maybe he could respond to some maybe. of the points. But he does he have a big YouTube channel? It looks like it. See, he has 400 views and 40 likes. That's a 10 to 1 ratio in, in a couple of days. Yeah, he, he seems to be a charismatic guy. And again, these Molinists they roam in packs together, like, like it's very <laughs> insulated, kind of like a cult not like a cult like calvinism but it's there's it's kind of cultish where if if you're pressing them back against them they'll swarm like rabid dogs and be like oh right, right. But, yeah, it's, a, it's just a small group of dedicated people yeah very very much so and they they really think that their molinism is really smart and so they get really angry at any pushback or criticisms of it so that that's that's my my uh, interactions with these these molinists. I, I got kicked out of one molinist Facebook page at one point. Uh, I don't think I did anything too egregious. I don't remember the exact uh, circumstances, but uh, they they get they get pretty angry if you push back against them. So, yeah, the, the Keith writes, yeah, that is the exact aspect is why debates don't really settle much. Each side is usually speaking to their own, and so uh, one thing that. There's those uh, four square debates or the four four corner debates or something where where they actually pull the audience beforehand and they say, do you agree with this side or this side? And then they kind of just determine the debate winner by how which side has changed more minds or mm -hmm. how many people went from neutral to whatever side. You you in a debate, you're probably not going to convince the dedicated followers of your opposition, the person you're debating with, but your real audience is that the actual audience. Those are the people you're trying to convince and give arguments, people who are open to considering various possibilities. And that's who your debate should be focused on rather than like John Sanders, when he's debating James White, he's trying to actually engage with James White in a, in a respectful conversation. And it's like, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're not, James White doesn't care about the things you have to say. You're not actually engaging in a discussion with James White. You're, you're communicating to his audience. You're communicating to the people who follow him that are open for persuasion in the other direction and treating it like a respectful conversation. That's not a winning debate strategy. And all James White's followers afterwards are like, oh, John Sanders got smashed. No, he's just being nice. He thought he thought he was having a intellectual conversation. He didn't know what he was. He didn't know he was in an actual debate with a true believer. Yeah. <laughs> I know that if I grab a cop's gun, he will arrest me. I must have middle knowledge. You must have middle knowledge of all future possibilities, all facts. 
All Are right. you comparing yourself to God? <laughs> it never fails. It never fails. It's so funny. Yeah, you know what was also really funny one time? I was on a, a clubhouse app and I was talking to this lady about uh what we're talking about Genesis three or God not knowing the future. And she's like, Well, in Genesis three, God is God is asking Adam and Eve where they've been. He's he's just He's just giving them uh, uh, questions to try to get them to admit truth. I said, well, it's not obvious. It actually could be the fact that God's actually inquiring because he did not know. And then she's like scoffing. She's like, oh, oh, like what? You you have to consider that as a potential possibility. My my children, when they first read that, they thought, well, God's inquiring because he didn't know where they were. Uh, Josephus Josephus, uh, thinks that, that that's what's going on there. And they instantly react like, oh, wait, that's not even a possibility. We should throw that out of consideration. It's like, we, we got to consider the, the extent of language and what's going on. And maybe consider that the Bible doesn't say the things that we want the Bible to say. Perhaps we may, might have to consider that. All right. So I think we beat that horse to death. And so probably uh, cut off there. We've been, I don't know how long we've got a good hour. So that was our goal is to do an hour conversation about this 13 minute video. And I think we've achieved it. You got any parting thoughts? Uh, it is, it, this is more of an aside than anything else, but it's interesting to see what dedication he's put into his studio for his group. <laughs> uh, like it's soundproofed with, with uh, blue lights and it, you know, it's probably some room in his house. This guy's very dedicated to Molinism. It's interesting to see that. Yeah, he's he's one of the main figures people are going to cite. He's got, I think, several books on the issue. And uh, those sound dampering panels are, I, th- I think they're good. You probably double layer them or something. But, I, I mean, uh, th- they work, but like he has to have a room dedicated to do this as well, right? Yeah, a lot of these I, people don't have children, so they got all sorts of free space in their house. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. He probably has children. I don't know if he's got a ring on that finger. Let's kind of uh, scroll forward a little bit. You're going to show us a ring, dude. Oh, no. His hand went down. Go go up hand. Uh, oh, there's a hand. Uh, uh, uh. It's going to be his left hand, right? Yeah, but you don't know if he's reversed the video or not. Some uh, you, you can mirror the videos. So it's like it's just too blurry every time. It's too blurry. They yeah. might have kids. I don't know. Or maybe he's got a lot of money in free time. Yeah. But we'll end there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and watching. And uh, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page or comment down below. And again, thank you to our guest, the the Honorable Doctor John Fisher, uh, resident uh, doctor. Of medicine. <laughs> no, not of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like bones. Fix that man's uh, arm. It's like, dang it, Jim. I'm a doctor, not a. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching.